So my apologies, I've kind of disrupted the, 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 the day, I realise, but I'm not, ordinarily I'm not a, I'm not a, a talkative person, but, but sometimes it, it takes me. So it might seem strange to be presenting the, the curry of us here as an example of penance and mortification. Not, of course, because he lacked anything of that spirit of self-denial that we've been considering in the last conference, uh, but on the contrary, because his example seems to be one of those about which we have become accustomed to say it is more admirable than imitable. And in addition to this, it has become fashionable to assume that uh, only saintly lay folk are appropriate models for lay folk and, and not priests or religious, uh, uh, as if holiness were hermetically sealed in the confines of state of life and did not, on the contrary, have something universal about it that comes from its very elevation, from its closeness to God, the Father of all, and as if it could not therefore touch the heart and inspire the will in whatever place or whatever form it takes. But on the contrary, when the church raises one of her children to the altars by canonization, she is doing more than simply judging uh, that this individual should be considered as being now in heaven. At least traditionally that is, that is the case. There may well be many souls now in heaven whose lives are nevertheless not to be held up as an example. We joke about the penitent thief on Calvary that his whole life he stole and in the end he even stole heaven itself. From the words of our Lord we know that he is in heaven. Right, so this day thou shalt be with me in paradise. But apart from this 11th hour conversion, as far as we know, well, there is nothing in his life that should be imitated. So traditionally, canonization is, is not just about saying whether someone is in heaven or, or not necessarily in heaven. On the contrary, traditionally, when the church canonizes a saint, she is, among other things, holding up that person as a model, an exemplar of sanctity for the universal church, for all the faithful, whatever their culture or state of life. And that is why traditionally part of the, the, the process of canonization involves proving that the future saint did not just possess the virtues of the Christian life, but, but, but possessed them to a heroic degree. Uh, we're not going to go into it now, but you should at least be aware that there is a legitimate uh, theological debate these days as to whether the current canonizations of the church are in fact infallible or not. Uh, based on the, the changes, there have been made changes to the process of canonization and the intention expressed in that uh, intention. A priest, in imitation of Christ, the high priest, is meant to preach by his example and by his words. Acts 1 1. Jesus began to do and to teach. 
It's always a risky thing for priests to talk about uh, St. John Mary Vianney because then people compare. <laughs> people compare. But we're going to do it anyway because we want to let ourselves be taught by the example of this holy priest, St. John Mary Vianney, who was born in 1786 and was the curé, the, the parish priest, of a little village called Ars in France from 1818 to 1859. Now we're not going to study his whole life, I'd be relieved about that, but we're only going to study the place of penance and mortification in his life. And we're going to join him in the year 1818 at the moment of his arrival in the little village of Ars. The village had been without a priest for many years because of the troubles caused by the revolution and the revolutionary wars in that country and in Europe. And the people, although they were officially Catholic, were very lukewarm. So let's put things in a little context. If we, if we read history as Catholics, which is what we should do, with the supernatural view of faith, then we will see that this revolution, beginning in France in 1789 and spreading far and wide uh, by propaganda and by force of arms was above all a revolution against God, against Christ and his church uh, and against Christian civilization. It had and it continues to have a devastating effect on souls. But throughout the 19th and the early 20th century, the church fought back with great courage. The 19th century was a period of great apostolic activity, both in Europe and in the foreign missions. The evangelization of Uganda is a testimony to that. And this apostolic activity was founded on the firm rock of true doctrine and real sanctity, including heroic self-denial. The life of St. John Marivieni is a, a microcosm of this. His priestly ministry was the expression of a profound interior life and grounded on prayer and penance. He is an example to us all in this age of the decadence of the church. We are living an age of decadence in the church as an apostle of Christian reconquest and tradition. So as parish priest of Ars, St. Jean-Marie had responsibility for the souls of his parishioners. And we can say that in his priestly soul, Christian charity took the form, above all, of a single-minded determination to convert his people and lead them to heaven. In the end, and that's what he was there for. We can bear in mind that, that charity is the overarching virtue of the whole Christian life. And it commands the acts of all the other virtues. And we had St. Paul telling us last Sunday, charity is patient, charity is kind. And it moves us to all these other virtues as well. This charity and apostolic zeal is what lay behind or commanded the great spirit of penance and mortification 
of the curé of Ars. So long before the break of day, while the rest of the village was still asleep, the holy priest would get up, he would cross the cemetery that lay between his house and the church, and entering, he would prostrate himself before the altar and intercede for his people. My God, he would plead, grant me the conversion of my parish. I am willing to suffer all my life whatsoever it may please thee to lay upon me. Yes, even for a hundred years I am prepared to endure the sharpest pains. Only let my people be converted. And as he bathed the pavement with his tears, he would would pray with these words. Now this prayer is very important. We see how charity can impel us to suffer, to do penance, to merit and offer satisfaction, as we said in the previous talk. Not just for ourselves, but for the souls of others. It shows us as well that our prayers, accompanied by works of penance, have an impetratory value. In other words, it makes our prayers more insistent, more heartfelt, It supports, it buoys up our prayer. At the break of day, he would still be there in the church. In those early days of his his time in the village, he had more more time in those early days. Later, there would be crowds that would come, he he didn't have any more time. In those early days, he had more time. Unless duty summoned him elsewhere, like a sick call, for example, he would spend the whole, he would spend all the morning hours in prayer. Uh, and this teaches us, as we said before, that duty comes first. Okay? He would be praying, that's a super regulatory work. If duty called, if there was a sick call, he would leave prayer and go to do that. Okay? We have to give priority to what we are obliged to do before turning to supererogatory works, works that are over and above what is morally and legally required. Our duties can also be offered in penance, as we said. Remember the, the judgment passed on Adam as part of the temporal punishment of his sin. God tells him that he shall labor and toil in the sweat of his face all the days of his life. Genesis three seventeen to 19 In those early days, the the curé would go in the afternoon for for exercise, walking in the surrounding countryside, praying his breviary of a rosary. He loved the beauty of God's creation, which raised his soul to the praise and contemplation of the Creator. He loved the seclusion of the woods and thirsted for solitude and peace. One day a villager discovered him in the woods praying on his knees, my God, convert my parish. Okay? That love of nature will be important later on, remember it. So in the, in the presbytery in his house, there were three mattresses. Shortly after his arrival in Ars, Jean-Marie gave his own mattress away to a destitute person, and the other two, which he had not yet given away, <laughs> remained tied up and unused. Uh, the curé would sleep on the floor over a few sticks of wood in one of the damp lower rooms of the house. And in fact, this dampness was the cause of the facial neuralgia 
that he contracted and which tormented him for 15 years. When that happened, instead of returning to his, to his own room, the room, the room that was set aside normally for the, for the parish priest, he took to sleeping in the attic on the bare floorboards using a log as a pillow. And before retiring to his sleeping place, he would strike himself with a discipline. Huh? It's a kind of a small whip to which he would add uh, iron points. His neighbours would sometimes hear him engaging in this exercise for the space of an hour. And the person who cleaned his room in the morning would find under the furniture fragments of chains, small keys, bits of iron or lead uh, that had come off his disciplines. The beginning of St. Jean-Marie's ministry coincided with the beginning of Lent. Uh, and so he sent away a servant that was reserved for him and reduced his material wants to a minimum. Now, during his first few years at Ars, he could go out, he could go two or three days sometimes without food. There was a woman, the widow Renard, who was supposed to look after the cooking in the, presby- in the presbytery. And she, she said later on that it was a very honorary uh, job. Uh, to begin with, she would order fresh bread from the bakery, but she soon discovered that without even tasting it, the saint would distribute this bread to the poor in exchange for any old crusts that might happen that they might happen to have. And often he would tell the cook not to come to the presbytery for a number of days. He would himself boil a few potatoes, which he then left hanging on the wall in an iron basket. And when the pangs of hunger became unbearable, he would eat one or two of these potatoes cold, and often by the end of a week they were already beginning to go bad. At other times he would make do with an egg or three little cakes that he would make for himself made from flour and salt and water. So this was his diet until 1827, so for about, uh, about, for about ten years. Even in later years, when he took his meals at the local school that was founded, he never touched meat, except occasionally and with the permission of his spiritual director, and he finished his meals for about, in about ten minutes, not very, very quickly. On Sundays, uh, he neglected himself altogether. We often think of Sunday as a day of feasting, uh, and so it is. In Lent, we we loosen the reins of our austerities a little on Sundays. But obviously for priests, Sunday is the day when they are more taken up with their duties. So often he would make do with a little blessed bread, nothing more. In some countries, like in France, there's this practice after Mass of blessing, uh, just ordinary bread with a special blessing as a type of sacramental. One day, a woman surprised the curé in the act of gathering sorrel in the garden. Sorrel is a kind of grass. And she said to him, So you feed on grass? Yes, I've tried to eat nothing else, but I could not go on with it. So in other words, this might seem like a very surprising anecdote, but nevertheless it shows us that one must know one's limits. Now the limits of of, of this holy priest were, were very high, Nevertheless, he knew when to stop. That's an important principle to remember. Another motivation of St. Jean-Marie Vianney's fasting was his well-known warfare against the devil. 
He likes to quote the words of our Lord, Matthew 17:20. This kind is not cast out except by prayer and fasting. Twenty years later, so in October 1839, he told a young priest who was staying with him, My friend, the devil is not greatly afraid of the discipline and other instruments of penance, which, which he used nevertheless. That which beats him is the curtailment of one's food, drink, and sleep. There is nothing the devil fears more. Consequently, nothing is more pleasing to God. Oh, how often have I experienced it. Whilst I was alone, and I was alone during eight or nine years, and therefore quite free to yield to my attraction, it happened at times that I refrained from food for entire days. On those occasions I obtained, both for myself and for others, whatsoever I asked of Almighty God. So in this passage, so this passage has three interesting points for us. Firstly, the power of good Christian fasting against the devil. These days we're always hearing, and we often hear from the Diocesan exorcists uh, that demonic activity is on the rise in the world. And of course there are a number of reasons, but surely all of them have their root in the crisis of the church since Vatican II, which has led Catholics in general to be more lukewarm. People are playing with fire, opening themselves up uh, to the devil. Fewer masses are said because there are fewer priests, and those priests that there are are often concelebrating. Three priests who concelebrate a mass, that is one mass that is said. Religious orders are less strict. But surely among these reasons uh, is the collapse of traditional ascetism among ordinary Catholics. You've already said that how until Pope Paul VI, every day of Lent was a day of fasting. Now there are only two days of fasting in the whole year. And that is why we encourage you possible and to follow the more serious rules of Lent from the old code of canon law, the code of 1917. Imagine what might happen if the entire Catholic population of the world fasted and prayed like that. So our first point, the power of good Christian fasting against the devil. Second point, again, St. John Mary Vianney, he points out the impetratory power of fasting, when he says, On those occasions I obtained, both for myself and for others, whatsoever I asked of Almighty God. And thirdly, he lets us understand that uh, he fasted most when he was alone. When other priests came to live with him later, huh, or in the years when he was looking after an orphanage and a school in a village, he fasted less, huh, because he had to take into account the needs of other people as well. And this teaches us discretion and the primacy of charity above all. So we mentioned in the last talk that there are, penan- according to the Council of Trent, there are penances that we do not necessarily choose for ourselves, even if we, we submit to them voluntarily, but they fall on us from outside. 
uh, by the circumstances of life, our duties, the people around us, uh, they count as penances if they are offered up, at least implicitly, with this intention. And this leads us to consider the great patience of the curé of Ars in bearing these crosses. His patience is one of the virtues that most astonished his close entourage. But we have evidence that it cost him much. It was not something that came easily to him. He had to fight against some of those passions that we mentioned in the earlier instruction. Because he was not naturally a calm person. On the contrary, he had a vivacious temperament. But he mastered it. One of his collaborators, Brother Atanas, tells us, he says this, I believe that if he had not been wholly dominated by virtue, he would easily have yielded to anger. It it required extraordinary exertion on his part to enable him to overcome this tendency. I know it from my own personal observation, for I have watched him and seen symptoms Slight enough in themselves, it is true. Thus, when some very tiresome people set him on edge, he used to to, to twist the handkerchief which he was in the habit of carrying in his hand. And it was easy to see what self-restraint he imposed upon himself so as not to yield to impatience. But one had to be very intimate with him to notice such things. Uh, Brother Atanas. He occasionally experienced involuntary antipathies, okay? but they were veiled by his charity. So here is a very, a very good illustration of the mortification of the passions. One, once in the, in the early days of his ministry, a villager came to the house and overwhelmed him with insults. Uh, because, of course, his, his charitable efforts after the conversion of the village did not please everyone. Huh? And he made a number, if not many, enemies, especially at the beginning. Huh? And being a Christian doesn't mean that you're, that you're very friendly with, with everyone. Huh? If, if everyone likes you, then probably there's, there's a problem. Hmm? He listened without a word. So this man heaps him with insults. He listened without a word. When the man was finished, he courteously accompanied him to the door and embraced him before parting. But the strain had been so intense that returning to his room with great difficulty, he was forced to lie on the bed, and in a few moments his whole body was covered with pimples. So what can we say about this episode? The passions are often accompanied by physical alterations. Usually, they're quite mild, but they are there. When people are afraid, they can can quake, they can shake. When they love, with with a love of of passion, their heart can beat faster. When they are angry, the blood can rise to their face. The stronger the passion, the more serious the physical effect. So we can imagine the intense Passion, uh, in this case anger, that the holy priest was, uh, was trying to dominate, was feeling uh, at this moment. In a few moments, his whole body, his entire body, was covered with pimples, uh, and in an instant. But he mastered it. 
He did not let himself be carried away by passion. Okay. Feeling the first movement of a passion or emotion is not sinful because it is not voluntary. But when we don't restrain ourselves, when we let ourselves go, when we let ourselves be governed not by reason and faith, but by passion, then it becomes voluntary and sinful. We commit unreasonable and sinful acts under the influence of passion. So we see how St. Jean-Marie disciplined his passions, and in particular those that he felt most vehemently, because of his temperament, the irascible passions, like anger. He disciplined them by acting in the opposite way. His patience was most tried in the later years, the later years of celebrity, when people got to know him, and the cult of St. Philomena that he had established in Ars, great crowds of pilgrims would come. He never had a moment to himself, but he was always surrounded and pestered by the crowds. One day in 1854, at the end of a catechism class, he was pestered so much, in fact, one person tried to slash his surplice, and another one was trying to tear out a few, few of his hairs. They were already after, after relics. Uh, some of the witnesses of the scene gave vent to their indignation on his behalf uh, and exclaimed, Monsieur le curé, uh, you really should send these people packing. In your place, I should be in a boiling rage. And the saint merely joked, Good gracious, I have spent 36 years in Ars and I have never yet been cross. Uh, how, now I am too old to begin. Uh. Other priests were loudest in their admiration. Huh? So priests tend to be impatient people, so they were, they were most in admiration of the patience of the curé of Ars. The canon Tayad, okay, one of the priests who knew him, said of him, I found him always meek, always smiling, always the same. Not blown about huh, from one side to another by passion. Always the same. When I commented on it, he said, what can I do? What would be the good of my losing my temper? Oh, how good it is for a priest to offer himself every morning as a sacrifice to God. Now, this is a very interesting comment. Huh? He is referring, of course, to the holy sacrifice of the Mass that he celebrated every morning. Huh? In the Mass, Christ himself is both priest and victim. And so it is fitting that the ministerial priest that stands at the, at the altar should, as much as possible, also offer himself as a victim with Christ. But we could say the same, not just of priests, but of all Christians. And so we see that penance is an act of religion, as we were saying, part of the sacrifice that we offer through Christ and with Christ and in Christ. St. Paul writes, Romans 12, 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing unto God, your reasonable service. And Pope Pius XII writes in the encyclical Mediato Dei, all Christians should possess 
all Christians should possess, as far as is humanly possible, the same dispositions as those which the divine Redeemer had when he offered himself in sacrifice. This means that they must assume, to some extent, the character of victim, but they deny themselves as the gospel commands, and freely and of their own accord they do penance, and that each detests and satisfies for his sins. End of quotation. And we can say a word also about the illnesses and the infirmities of the body that the curé bore patiently in a spirit of penance and mortification. He had on his left arm an open sore, and at times, as the pilgrims to Ars pressed round and jostled him, they caused him acute pain, which he bore. For 15 years he suffered from a terrible rheumatism contracted in the damp rooms of the presbytery, and this also caused him severe headaches. Uh, while preaching, uh, he even contracted a double hernia, and he also suffered much from toothache. Okay? He, in fact, he asked the schoolmaster of the village to, to, to draw out, to rip out several of his teeth with pincers. And that was okay. Medical and dental science was not very advanced in those days. But he bore all this in a spirit of penance. And now we can turn to what was by far uh, the greatest and most unusual instrument of his mortification, which was the confessional. So a priest, Father Mona, he called the, the curé a martyr of the confessional. He might have fled from sinners and have hidden himself in a cloister or in a desert. The love of souls made him stay at Ars. In fact, two or three times during his ministry, he seriously considered going away and becoming a monk. But he came back. He who had spent his youth in the fields, as we were saying, in the pure atmosphere of his native hills, remained for days remained on days when a serene sky calls men into the open country, riveted to that rude seat in his confessional, a prisoner of sinners. Remember the love of the beauty of nature, which we mentioned, and how in the early days his delight was to walk and pray in the woods and the country lanes, the valley of Fontblanc, which had been his particular delight Ah, had been his particular delight and he was uh, sitting in his confessional box so he was divided from it only by a few houses and the walls of his church yet for 30 years he deprived himself of the pleasure of tasting its charm its pastures, its restful shade Monsignor Francis Trochu wrote a famous life of the curé of Ars he calls the holy curé's confessional box an anticipated coffin so much time did he spend in there okay, he'd spend in fact especially in those later years of the pilgrimage he'd spend the greater part of his day day after day in the confessional box in summer the heat of the church was stifling and by his own admission it gave him an idea of hell he often had to keep, in fact, he often had to keep a wet towel on his forehead whilst he was sitting there because of the tortures that his violent headaches caused him. 
But during winter, on the contrary, he suffered from the freezing cold brought by the winds that descend from the great ice-covered mountains of the Alps. And one priest who stayed with him during the winter of 1839 recalls how the saint's feet were in such a state from the cold that when he took his stockings off at night, the skin of his heels uh, would stick to them. Asked how he could bear such cold with such poor clothing on his feet, he jokingly replied, oh, the saints, they always have a good sense of humour, the saints. The saint, the saint jokingly replied, oh, my friend, I can do so for very good reason that from all saints until Easter, I do not feel my feet at all. <laughs> his entourage tried to improve his situation, but he always rejected these efforts. Huh? He always cast away the cushion that others tried to place on the hardboard of the confessional. Eventually, he did allow a stove to be installed in the sacristy, had to heat the sacristy, which is where he used to hear the men's confessionals, but only because he was told that the liturgical vestments were in fact going mouldy from the cold and the damp. That was his priority. In addition to all this, all that he suffered, as it were, all that was from outside, in addition to all this, St. Jean-Marie imposed on himself a whole series of other little mortifications that we might think were superfluous for a man in his position. But he did them nonetheless. He laid on himself a sacrifice never to enjoy the fragrance of a flower, a mortification of the sense of smell, never to taste the sweetness of a fruit, a mortification of the taste. Never to brush away a fly that importuned him. A fly would land on his face. Huh? Let it be. A mortification of a sense of uh, touch. When kneeling, he would never rest his elbows on the bench to support himself. Posture, he mentioned. He made it a personal law for himself never to show any dislike and to hide all natural repugnances. And he mortified for most legitimate interests. For example, he never expressed so much as a wish to see the railway that passed close to us and brought so many thousands of pilgrims to the village. I have to remember that the in those days, the railway was an exciting and modern invention. It passed close by, but he never went to sea. For 40 years, he scourged himself for sinners. And when his instruments took away his instruments of penance, he made others for himself. On each arm, for example, he wore a bracelet set with sharp points. To some, all this might seem terribly excessive. But another important point is that none of these practices led to pride, as they might do. Someone who's, huh, who's very generous in, <clears throat> in, their, in their mortifications, huh, they might, in the end, huh, there's a danger that they might do it, in fact, they might get a sense of, of pride from it. Huh? Or they might become attached to them. Huh? Remember, all these things, okay, we're, we're preaching a whole recollection 
uh, on penance and mortification. But we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that these are means and not ends. So none of these things led him into pride. On the contrary, we see the saint maintaining a, a spirit of that humble obedience that spurns self-will. And that is the greatest, the greatest mortification, uh, the interior mortification. For example, in around 1834, when the curé felt particularly exhausted, the bishop commanded him to start eating breakfast. And he obeyed this order. So this shows us that he was not attached disordinately to his spiritual practices. I remember what the Book of Kings says. Obedience is better than victims. He valued interior mortification more than exterior mortification. Although he did both. In the end, of course, his, his stomach contracted so much that he was physically incapable of eating as much as other people. And this led to a whole series of other problems. Uh, local, a local noble lady tells us how uh, a dinner was given in her, in her chateau, uh, in, her, in her big house, uh, in honour of the, the bishop, Monsignor Devi, who was present. And the bishop insisted on having his dear curé, uh, by his side, obliging him to eat like the rest of the company. So the saint obeyed. Uh, he sat down and he ate like everyone else. But subsequently he became very ill. He could no longer take it. Huh? And it was even thought that he would die. And then after that the bishop decided to give him complete freedom to follow his, his ordinary regime. Uh, but you see how much he cherished obedience and the mortification of his self-will. But the saint did not impose his regime upon those to whom he had occasion to offer hospitality. It was a very nice phrase of a, of a modern saint who said, we should choose mortifications but do not mortify others. His sister, Marguerite Vianney, recalls, when my niece was about to be married, she went to see my brother, that is the priest, huh, the saint, a few days, she went to see my brother a few days before the wedding. And he told Catherine Lassagne, that was a lady who, who worked in the parish, to prepare a little meal. He sat at table with the parents, and on that day, putting aside his usual austerity, he took a little of every dish. And another witness, Guillaume Villiers, says, whenever we brought him wood or corn or other provisions, for his providence, that was a, a school that he had started for poor girls. He received and treated us very well indeed. He himself served us with food and drink. He was most courteous. He touched glasses with us, but refused to drink. We never succeeded in making him drink with us. And the priests of the, of the local district used to meet together occasionally for a spiritual conference, followed by a fraternal dinner held at the local Chateau, the local castle of the, of the, of the noble family. But from, from 1854, this dinner was transferred from the chateau to the house of the missionaries in the village. And in the, there was a congregation of missionary priests that came to the village to help with the large number of pilgrims. At the very last of these gatherings to take place in the saint's lifetime, 
Several of the priests present said that they had had the best dinner of the whole district. And when this was recounted to uh, Jean-Marie, who had himself ordered the meal, he was the one who had organized it, he said, so much the better. Things should be done like that. When we entertain colleagues, we should do it nobly. That is how Monsieur Bailly used to act. That was the, he was talking about the, the parish priest of, uh, of Ecouli, who sent him to seminary and whose vicar he was for some time. He continued, at, at Ecouli, when there were only the two of us, we lived on what was forthcoming, oh, what people, the little that people gave. Anything was good enough. But when we had a guest, he would be sure of an excellent reception. Ah, Monsieur Bailly, he was so good. So here we see how penance and mortification did not get in the way of fraternal charity and courtesy. That is to say that whilst uh, that that said, whilst the members of the conference were having that that splendid dinner that he had prepared for them, Saint Jean-Marie himself took his own dinner in about five minutes in a small table in his own room. So he was hard on himself, not on others. So St. John Marie's whole life that was like a great and continuous Lent. And we can draw inspiration from this for our own penance and mortification. Convinced that if ever, convinced that if even the great saints do this, then we certainly have a need in order to satisfy the sin, in order to dominate our unruly lower inclinations, in order to be conformed to Christ, denying ourselves and bearing the cross like him, striving against the flesh, the world, the devil. So let us bear patiently the circumstances of our life and work, and let us be generous in our fasting and other corporal mortifications but also in the mortification of our will, not being attached to our particular way of doing things. Above all, let us, like Saint Jean-Marie, accomplish our penance and mortification in a spirit of sacrifice, offering them in union with Christ to the Heavenly Father in a spirit of charity, the Queen of Virtues and in a spirit of zeal for souls. Now we're going to finish with the the collect prayer for the Mass of the Feast of St. John-Marie Vianney. But just before, it's always good to compare uh, the old and the new, the traditional and the modern. So just so you can compare, first I'm going to read you the prayer from the Novus Ordo, the liturgy of Paul VI, which always seems to leave no stone unturned and always seems to want to undermine, diminish traditional Catholic beliefs and practice. Okay? In this case, it's the practice of prayer and penance. So the modern prayer goes like this. Almighty and merciful God, who made the priest St. Jean-Marie Vianney wonderful in his pastoral zeal, grant, we pray, that through his intercession and example, we may, in charity, win brothers and sisters for Christ and attain with them eternal glory. And now we'll finish with the traditional prayer. 
Almighty and merciful God, who by pastoral zeal, the yoke of prayer and the ardour of penance, has made glorious St. Jean-Marie, grant to beseech thee that by his example and intercession we may be enabled to gain for Christ the souls of our brethren and with them attain to everlasting glory. For the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.